0: This panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference, hosted at Queen's University from the 29th of February to the 1st of March, 2020.
1: Thank you for coming out. It's going to be a nice, intimate session. We're going to get asked lots of questions and have immediate contact with our wonderful panel of presenters. So, this panel will explore the implications of shallow and deep hydrologic processes on sustainable resource development and wine... (laughs) Not wine, mine waste <laughs> management in the Arctic. Combining our panel's three research areas of civil engineering, geology, and hydrology within the context of the Arctic, we'll be discussing the current state of knowledge in Arctic hydrology, hydrogeology, and address how cold region processes might influence the design of mine waste storage facilities. Together, we'll highlight the importance of bridging knowledge from engineering. Hydrogeology and physical geography in high Arctic landscapes. So, we have Matthew Clinton, who's pursuing a PhD in civil engineering with a focus on geoenvironmental engineering. He is currently researching the long term performance of landfill liners called geomembranes, which are increasingly being used to store mine waste in the Arctic. We have Maya and Tabitha, who are MSc candidates working in the Environmental Variability and Extremes Laboratory. In geography, but they both come from different backgrounds. Maya has focused her studies and work experience in geology and is currently researching how differing geologic and permafrost settings affect deep groundwater under high Arctic lakes. And Tabitha has spent two summers doing remote field work in northern regions and is now studying hill slope hydrology in high Arctic mineral soils. And so we're going to be kicking off with Tabitha first. Great,
2: thank you, Mark. Okay, so yeah, so I'm going to be specifically talking to you about uh, my research, which is um, pipe seats, which are high-velocity water flows in the subsurface of high Arctic soils. But before I get into that, I want to give an overview of the Arctic. Um, I don't know your background, but I just wanted to clarify a few things. Um, There are several definitions of the Arctic, um, or ways in which we can put a boundary to the Arctic, Uh, one of which is um, by latitude. The Arctic Circle is defined as 66.6 degrees north, um, and that's a latitude above which um, landscapes receive, well, north of which we receive 24 hours of sunlight in the summer or 24 hours of darkness in the winter. We can also define the Arctic as uh, where the tree line is. Um, So everything north of the tree line has no trees, uh, just because it's too cold, there's not enough nutrients, the growing season is too short. Um, We can also define the Arctic by the ground temperature. And this is one that uh, engineers like to use because engineers need to know the ground temperature in order to uh, build things. Um, And also air temperature Uh, Some people say that the Arctic is defined as um, the area at which um, the warmest month of the year is below 10 degrees Celsius. And the Arctic is usually associated with the cryosphere. So we all know what the biosphere is and the hydrosphere. Um, But the cryosphere is just the world of the frozen. Um, So that can be ice or permafrost, um, things like that. The Arctic is also associated with permafrost. What exactly is permafrost? Well, it's ground that has been below zero degrees Celsius for at least two consecutive years. Um, And there are different extents of permafrost. You can have continuous uh, permafrost where it's very, very cold, um, down to isolated (coughs) patches in uh, more southern regions. And uh, you can also get permafrost in alpine, uh, environments. Um, the, the northern hemisphere is covered by 25% of permafrost. Um, Greenland on the other hand is 99% uh, permafrost. Um, yeah, So Canada and Russia both have 50% of permafrost, uh, their landscape is underlain by permafrost. And above permafrost you get what is called the active layer, which is um, the soil that annually thaws, and then refreezes. And it is in this layer that um, your liquid water can flow within because water cannot flow within the permafrost um, usually. And the active layer can range in depth from less than 15 centimeters in very cold regions to above one meter uh, in the subarctic. So what exactly does the Canadian Arctic look like? Um, I know when I was a kid, I would think of the North Pole as uh, just this white, empty landscape that I saw on uh, Santa Claus movies. In Santa Claus movies, um, but when I went to the Arctic for the first time when I was 20, I discovered that it was um, not what I had imagined <laughs> at all. Uh, so this is an image of Iqaluit, which is the capital of um, Nunavut. It's uh, in the southern part of the Arctic, and um, what you can see at the bottom picture there is uh, actually a church in the form of an igloo. Then if you go a bit higher north, uh, you can find areas that are completely flat, like Hall Beach. And uh, up, up north, if you go even uh, more north, um, and we reach Axel Heiberg Island, this is an island <coughs> that's very mountainous and uh, covered in glaciers. Um, The vegetation um, has grown under very stressful conditions, so very short growing seasons, um, very um, low nutrient availability, so the vegetation tends to be short. And the animals that we get in the Arctic, well, we have a variety of land and uh, marine animals, um, birds, insects, and I just named a few. Although the Arctic covers a large um, extent of our Earth, only one to two percent of the world population lives in the Arctic, uh, some of which are natives, uh, indigenous, some of which are not, um, some of which are permanent residents, and some of which are kind of going there for work and coming back south. Climate change is disproportionately affecting the Arctic. Um, in a process we call, in a phenomenon we call uh, polar amplification. This is caused by a variety of things, uh, notably the loss in sea ice and then all the feedback effects that feed into that, um, that just perpetuate the warming. Um, and climate change has, um, has lots of different effects, um, but I won't get into that. Okay, now we're gonna switch gears. We're gonna start talking about the hydrological cycle. Um, in non-permafrost regions, the hydrology is pretty well understood. We know that there's reservoirs, so places that hold water, and fluxes, um, which are transfers of water from one reservoir to the next. Um, but in permafrost regions, w- we can't apply our knowledge of hydrology in non-permafrost regions to permafrost regions because it's so different. Um, For example, we have glaciers uh, up north, which are huge reservoirs of water um, that we don't get down south. So hydrology is really constrained spatially and temporally in uh, northern regions. The permafrost is a huge constraint on um, water movement. So as you can see on this uh, diagram, to the right, uh, you, you have permafrost, and so water is allowed to flow above it, in supra-permafrost water or below it, subpermafrost uh, water. And I, I will be um, talking about supra-permafrost water, which is above the permafrost, while Maya will be talking uh, about the interaction of both uh, subpermafrost and supra-permafrost. Um, my field site is at Cape Bounty um, on Melville Island. uh, at the border of uh, the Northwest Territories and Nunavut. And I chose this site because of its uh, continuous permafrost. Um, Also because since 2003, hydrological research has been conducted here. So it makes it a great place to build my research upon. Uh, Also, pipe seeps have been observed here. And I'll I'll get into detail as to what pipe seeps are exactly. Um, currently, we know very little about hill slope hydrology in the Arctic. Um, some work has been done and I've listed it here. Um, but really, we don't know much. Um, and so I, I'm i studying pipe seeps, and I'll show you a video. I hope it plays. There we go. So you can think of it as literally pipes within the soil, but they're natural pipes, they form naturally, and um, they discharge water. And you can tell that the volume is, there's lots of water flowing out. Um, And I want to determine whether this pipe seep can be explained by a hydrological model known as the fill and spill model, um, with preferential flow pathways, which as the name would suggest, there are pathways in which water flows preferentially. Um, So this is a diagram I made to kind of explain um, my hypothesis better. So um, the fill and spill model proposes that um, a system must fill or saturate with with water before it can then start discharging water. And so, I hypothesize that when a system, when one of these pockets within the ground um, fills, it can then discharge into preferential flow pathways, uh, which then discharge as pipe seeps at the surface. And in order to fill, you need to have boundaries, right? You need to have a system to hold the water. And in this uh, system, it's permafrost. And the uneven thaw of the permafrost is causing these pockets in which water can then uh, fill in or saturate. So in order to do this, um, I'll be monitoring the hydrometric properties of the seep, uh, of like maybe five seeps. Um, So what that means is uh, discharge, conductivity, temperature. Um, I'll also be uh, looking at the um, properties of the active layer and seeing how it thaws uh, throughout the summer. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna be using lots of different measurements to get the full story. And uh, last year, I went to the field and I, measure, I used so many different measurements and so many of them just failed. So it's very important in this field to have repeat measurements using different um, methods Um, especially when it's so expensive to get there. You really want to get results. Um, Okay, but who cares? Well, there are several um, implications of my research um, on the hydrological cycle, the biogeochemical cycles, uh, water quality, and geohazards. Um, A principal characteristic of a landscape is, is its hydrology. Before we can start, building buildings or drinking the water or being able to rely on water long-term, we need to understand the hydrology of the landscape, um, especially when we're faced with changes. For example, climate change is going to change the system quite a lot. We're expected to get a lot more rainfall in some regions of the Arctic, which means that you'll, you'll get a lot more liquid water to the system. Um, and the water, while it's... It's uh, constrained to this active layer, um, which means it's gonna saturate completely. And then that has effects on the biogeochemistry, um, creating, because it creates anoxic conditions. Um, so there's lots of feedback effects. And when I say feedback effects, it's just um, like a vicious cycle. Yeah. Um, let's see. Also, when water is in the soil. It interacts with the soil particles, and so nutrients can leach out, uh, biogeochemicals, um, and then they can be mobilized and brought elsewhere. For example, downstreams and into lakes, and while well, people drink water from the lakes. And just to give an ex- an example of why water is so important uh, for water quality. Well, I've been told just recently, but apparently it's been happening for many years now that um, women in the Arctic that rely on uh, a traditional diet of, uh, for example, seal, a lot of marine animals, well, they can no longer breastfeed because there's so much mercury in the oceans that the seals are becoming toxic and then they can no longer breastfeed. Um, yeah. And lastly, water uh, in the soil when there's water, and you can see in this diagram at the bottom there, uh, when the soil is saturated, it creates pore pressure, and pore pressure can lead to um, uh, can lead to um, many different things, such as the active layer detachments, which is like a mini landslide, uh, as shown as on the picture above. Yeah. So in conclusion. Um, Although we know lots about non-permafrost hydrology, there's a lot more to learn on permafrost hydrology. And so my goal of my master's is to um, determine whether pipe seeps can be explained by uh, these preferential flow pathways with the fill and spill model. And um, the implications extend to the hydrological cycle, the biogeochemical cycle, water quality, and prediction and maybe mitigation of geohazards. Thank you. I don't know
0: what's happening. That's great. Maya, can you help with your computer? <laughs>
3: guys. Um, so so uh, we just had a nice introduction on the Arctic uh, hydrogeology and I'm going to um, switch things up a little bit and talk a little bit about a different topic which is the storage of mine waste in the Arctic. Um, and we're going to be looking back at the history of this, uh, where it currently is and where I think we're headed with, uh, in terms of environmental protection in, in the Arctic. Uh, my name is Matt Clinton, and I'm doing my PhD in Geoenvironmental Engineering, which is uh, a field that relates to waste management and cleaning up polluted sites. Um, I'm under the supervision of Dr. Rowe in the Department of Civil Engineering. Um, so I like this uh, picture right here because it really captures kind of like where waste goes. We don't really see where it goes, and there's a veil over our eyes um, in terms of uh, uh, the consumerism, kind of like in the cradle to grave kind of problem that humanity is facing right now. Um, and on that note, uh, the, you probably heard of the expression "out of sight, out of mind." Um, and um, I think that you know people are interested in like waste where it goes. When you start bringing up this topic, people's ears perk up. They want to talk about it, or they're interested. Um, and so. You know, this uh, approach of uh, the old, I'm calling it the old town dump. Uh, the old town dump is, or town dumps have existed for thousands of years, right? So ancient civilizations, when they had waste, they just threw it in a hole in the ground, right? And that worked perfectly fine for hundreds and, and maybe even thousands of years. But guess what? The world is getting very populated and that, that caught up to us, right? So an example of how that caught up to us is Love Canal in Buffalo, New York. Now, Love Canal um, is one of the, uh, the most cited, I would say, uh, environmental disasters, um, and I'm not going to get into this, but it was pretty much uh, some shady business dealings between a suburban developer and a previous chemical company that dumped, called the Hooker Chemical Company, that dumped 22,000 tons of hazardous waste and barrels um, into this site that was subsequently bought by a municipality and a school district and actually I've researched this case a little bit and the municipality is one of the... They were doing some shady stuff, let's just leave it at that. Um, But the important thing is that this happened in 1976 and in in the 1970s there was kind of like this sort of uh, understanding of what was going on, things were changing, and it was really the advent of some important environmental regulations. So it was the advent of geo-environmental engineering, for example. And uh, as I was alluding to before, um, this field of engineering is an interdisciplinary field within civil engineering, and it's at the intersection of geotechnical or foundation engineering, environmental engineering, and also groundwater engineering and groundwater hydrology. Um, And we have two main responsibilities. So we work on cleaning up polluted sites, and we also work on preventing sites from becoming polluted by constructing and researching barrier systems. So to build a barrier system, we have several tools, but they can generally fall into two categories. There's, we work with natural materials, so we work with the actual site. We're trying to site these things on actual clay sites. Um, We can use bacteria for bioremediation, but we're also working with synthetic materials, right? Because these are engineered facilities. It's really important to have an understanding of what can go wrong. Um, That's probably the most important part about my field, Kind of like diagnosing things and looking at like basically case histories of things that had went wrong, and then we learn from them to prevent them from happening again. Um, And redundancy in a design and using conservativeness is like super important, and I'm going to highlight those in a bit here. But the 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 waste that we're focusing on in this presentation is the waste that's going to be or is in the Arctic. And it's not municipal solid waste. It's mining waste. That's the problem in the Arctic. And uh, Canada's mining activities generated $57.6 billion in 2016. And all of that waste um, needs to go somewhere. It needs to be managed properly. And um, so mining waste generally falls into two different categories, tailings and waste rock. So when, they're, when they actually get the mineral out of the ground, the rock... Um, it's in pretty low concentrations, whether it's gold, or copper, or uranium. So there's different processes to extract it, and I don't want to get into details, but they powderize it, and a lot of these processes are pretty water-intensive. So they produce this really fine-grained slurry material called tailings, which is mostly water and powderized rock, but it can also contain like other chemicals that they use in the process. We also have just like larger fraction stuff of waste rock. Um, so this stuff can contain processed chemicals to use to extract it, as well as heavy metals such as arsenic. But the biggest threat from mine waste is actually what's called acid rock drainage. And that's because rocks and minerals often contain iron. And when ferric iron mixes with air and water, it produces acid. And that leaches out of the waste um, and can get into streams. It can wreak havoc on the environment. So that's one of the main design objectives is to, in the barrier system, to prevent, to make it airtight, prevent air from getting in, as well as water, um, to design a cover that can prevent precipitation from getting in. And as I was uh, talking about earlier, um, you know, it's really important to, especially as a civil engineer, to look at, like, failures, because if you don't understand failures, they're gonna happen again, right? It's like the classic lesson of history, right? History repeats itself. So I'm going to talk about two important mining disasters in Canada. So one was really recently, which is concerning. It was in 2014, and it was in British Columbia at the Mount Poli mine. And as you can see, this little before aerial photograph shows the mine site, you can see that they have the open pit mine on the north side there, the open pit mine, um, the mine uh, facilities. And then you notice that blue pool thing to the south and that's the tailing storage facility and I have a little schematic there that shows a cross-section of a tailing storage facility. So they basically construct a big bathtub with embankments um, and sometimes it's lined, sometimes it's unlined and the tailings go in and they eventually settle out leaving like a supernatant fluid on top. So what happened was one of those embankments wasn't designed properly and it was on unstable ground. And it uh, actually gave way, and it broke, and all those tailings um, leaked out into a local creek, um, Hazeltine Creek. And you can just see how the creek kind of like lit up. You could, that's from the sediments in the creek. Uh, and this tailings waste traveled um, almost five kilometers downstream into the receiving um, lake, which was called Quesnel Lake. And there's another photograph of the uh, the breach in the embankment, and the tailings, um, just really wrecking havoc uh, on this site. Um, and then the last uh, failure I want to talk about is this happened in the Arctic. Um, this was Giant Mine, which was a gold mine in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, and it um, it's been op- it was operational for several decades in the mid, mid- middle of the 20th century. Um, but the last mining company um, to to have it went bankrupt, and they left uh, almost t- uh, two hundred and fifty or two hundred and thirty-seven thousand tons of arsenic trioxide dust, which is a byproduct of um, the gold extraction. And because they went bankrupt, the uh, government had to step in to take resp- to take uh, responsibility of the cleanup, and that uh, that fell on the Department of Indian Affair- Indian Affairs and Northern Development. And they um, basically, with their consultants who helped design it, they uh, landed on this solution, this remediation solution, which they termed the frozen block method, which basically involved them taking all that arsenic waste and putting it back in the mine and then freezing it with a refrigeration method that cost taxpayers $900 million. So is that environmental justice if the mining company just makes all these profits and then throws it on the taxpayer to, to clean it up? And the other problem is that uh, it's an active solution, meaning that it needs continual refrigeration. So what if they just up and leave and the refrigerators turn off? Or what if there's some issue and they can't refrigerate it for some reason? So that's not a good design if it requires continual refrigeration. So let's talk a little bit more about the Arctic mine waste. So um, more than $8 billion in new Arctic mineral resource development is anticipated in the next decade. And that's concerning because there's going to be a lot of waste and potentially a lot of issues. So it's something that we need to have a discussion about as a society, um, both from an engineering point of view, but also from um, a societal point of view. And just like all sorts of different uh, disciplines should be talking about this, I think. Um, But uh, I do want to touch briefly on how it's been stored in the past in the Arctic and kind of like where we're, where we're heading, and I think where I would recommend and hope that we are heading in a safer direction. So the interesting thing is that um, because there's permafrost, uh, they have actually been using what's called the freeze-back cover method. So they're relying on frozen ground for the barrier. They have been doing that, um, and they still actually do it in some places. And a lot of these uh, uh, mining waste sites that had used, used this method are just sitting there with this frozen method. Uh, the map on the left shows the Mackenzie Delta, and I know it's hard to see, but there's little black dots that represent previous drilling sites where they had um, either been drilling for exploratory purposes, or maybe for oil, or maybe for like mineral exploration. And uh, drilling produces drilling waste, <laughs> so they basically took the drilling fluids and they dug a hole in the permafrost, put them in there, and then uh, covered it back up and relied on you know, the frozen ground to the permafrost to encapsulate it freeze it Um, and they're unlined typically because permafrost is actually really impermeable but the problem with that is that like I was saying, it's going to eventually thaw at some point Um, we know that uh, as Tabitha was mentioning that due to the polar amplification effect um, we're expecting very large um, temperature increases in the Arctic um so, luckily, the good news is that Arctic uh, consultants, that mining companies and, and the government hires to design and assess these facilities, they are realizing that, and they're starting to shift towards using modern landfill barrier systems with liners, clay liners, geomembranes, which are plastic liners, um, in the Arctic, and that's a, that's a good thing, I think. Um, So let's talk a little bit about how those work. So this is a schematic uh, picture, actually, of an old uh, landfill approach. Um, This is kind of like an antiquated, you can think of an antiquated, outdated landfill approach. So like around before the 1960s, if a town had waste, um, where do you think they would put it, right? The town, the municipality would say, okay, we have all this waste, we're trying to build a landfill. Well, we have this big pit in the ground. It's an old quarry or a gravel pit, let's just put it there. It's already a hole in the ground. Um, now, the problem with that is that quarries um, are in rock, and rock has fractures, so it's a really pervious environment. And same with gravel pits, right? So a lot of those uh, early landfills were pretty uh, pretty bad, and they definitely polluted the, le- the leachate from the waste, polluted the uh, groundwater, as you can see in this picture. But... Um, Fortunately, we've uh, come a long way since then, and uh, so this is a schematic now, of a modern landfill barrier system. And the first thing I want to mention is that um, they generally site these on clay aquitards. So they're picking a site that has clay, and oftentimes there's some landfills that are actually designed even without a a plastic liner system because because they have uh, selected a clay site. But just to give you an idea um, how these things work, we have several levels of redundancy. We have a, from like top to bottom in the liner system, we have a leachate collection uh, system which removes the leachate um, from the landfill and it's treated. Um, and then after that's done for several decades, um, the waste becomes more stabilized and the contaminants in the waste are continually like decreasing. Um, so underneath that leachate collection system is a liner system, typically a plastic liner over a clay liner, followed by another gravel layer, which is called the leak detection layer. So anything getting through that primary liner is going to be picked up in the leak detection layer. And then that's followed by another clay liner with another geomembrane overlaying by this entire clay site. So, you know, some of the biggest environmental problems from these modern landfills are actually the truck traffic going in, um, complaints about that as well as uh, methane leaks which can be um, explosive fire hazards but in terms of like groundwater contamination especially in Ontario Ontario is on par with Germany in terms of stringentness in landfill regulations Um, and that's just a little picture for reference (laughs) how thick these liner systems are so you can see that there's the two so the leak detection layer the other thing I was mentioning it's quite a robust system. So some people ask me, and again, this is like my research is on liner systems. Um, so some people ask me, well, what if there's holes in the liner? And I would say that, well, we have methods of picking up those holes. There's uh, electrical leak location surveys, and then they can patch them. And then how long will they last? So in Ellis Hall over there, we have uh, a laboratory that for the past three decades has been devoted to answering that question. Um, and we have... All sorts of different products that they use for these barrier systems. We put them in um, jars and ovens at different temperatures in different solutions, different types of leachate, and we use really elevated temperatures. Um, so, using elevated temperatures, we can extrapolate their degradation and their aging down to lower temperatures. So, we can accelerate what happens in 100 years or 500 years in just the course of a couple of years. Um, and we even have That's more of an index um, or a proxy because it's just stuff in a jar, right? But we actually have these simulators um, that uh, Mark I think was mentioning a second or earlier this morning uh, that uh, are really simulate what's going on at the bottom of the landfill, so we can connect that index to this. Um, And as I was saying, there's decades of research into the long-term performance. The problem getting back to the Arctic, is that all this research was really on landfills and mining waste storage facilities in temperate climates. So all this research has been focused on that, but there's not a lot of research on how these barrier systems perform in the Arctic. And that is what uh, the research group that I'm working in um, and with Professor Kerry Rowe were just starting to, to look at this. We got an NSERC grant uh, last year to, to look um, pretty heavily into this with I think there's enough funding for Seven PhD students over the course of like four years just to start the the project off. So, so to end on this presentation, I'm just going to say what I think needs to be done to design properly in the Arctic, like what the direction that designers should be going in. And I think it needs to be a holistic approach that considers the service life of the engineer components, the cryo hydrogeological setting, um, and then most importantly, how climate change is going to thaw and change that. Hydro- hydrological setting um, so you can pretty much break it down into three stages stage one is immediately like time equals zero so can those materials in the installation of that liner withstand like arctic conditions that could be up to negative down to negative 60 degrees celsius and um, some liners can't take that some materials will crack at that temperature but I'm rating the difficulty pretty easy because we can select materials that can withstand that temperature for installation. So the next phase is intermediate. So this is like after the, during the filling of the facility and when it's covered, um, there'll be changes to the thermal regime of the perma- permafrost, and that's going to cause some subsidence as it thaws, and it could be like differential settlement. So the facility, and as you can see in this, this house right here that was in the Arctic, um... Tabitha was telling me the other day that the reason this house settled unevenly was because the boiler was in the middle and it created a hot spot on the concrete pad so that basically melted or thawed the permafrost. Um, so anyways, that could happen to... That building that settled could happen to a facility, so the liner system needs to tolerate that settlement. But I'm rating the difficulty as more difficult than the stage one but uh, but possible to accurately predict that behavior, um, but the bad news the bad news is that the long term uh, after that, considering climate change in the long term, this is very difficult to predict, and I've read a lot in the literature. A lot of people in the literature are saying that current, even currently, like as of today, um, and even in the next couple of years. Uh, There's no climate model that currently exists that can accurately predict permafrost changes in the future. Maybe we'll get to that point, and they're certainly at the point where they can we know where the air temperatures are going, but it's so much more complex when you're looking at permafrost, which is like ice and soil and air pockets and all these other things. So, um, but it's so important to understand that. Um, And to conclude, mining companies need to be held to the highest environmental standards, and they can't just get away with things like that anymore. And we need to be vigilant um, as you know citizens, as people, to hold them to that. Uh, regulatory bodies uh, need to also hold them to that high standard. And the focus really needs to be on long-term performance. You can't just have mining companies say, well, we're using this freezing method of relying on permafrost. That's not acceptable anymore. Um, And to end, I would just say that the added cost of building a facility, like a landfill, properly is nothing compared to the cost of cleaning up a failed one. Um, And then my supervisor always likes to say, you don't get what you expect, you get what you inspect. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's it. (laughs) It's all you, Maya.
4: So my name is Maya Summers, um, and I'm currently in my uh, first year of my master's in Geography Department uh, here at Queen's. And uh, I'm going to be talking um, about what processes are, are going on beneath the permafrost. So Tabitha kind of covered um, the hydrology at the surface, and now I want to talk about what might be going on beneath that um, and why understanding these systems are, are going to be important. So I'm just going to cover a bit about Um, what groundwater actually is, and then I want to talk about the difference between groundwater here and how groundwater behaves in the high arctic. Um, And then I I really want to focus on how groundwater interacts with high arctic lakes, and then I'm going to discuss a little bit about the research that I'm hoping to do. So groundwater sits below the water table um, within layers of solid bedrock or unconsolidated sediments. Um, And this can be within porous sedimentary rocks that have been cemented together over millions of years. Or it can also be found in uh, the pore spaces uh, between sediments, which you can see in the picture on the right. Um, And groundwater can also be found in highly fractured crystalline rocks, which is in the picture on the left. So you can see that there's fractures and that's where some of the water can sit. Uh, and water can accumulate here. And just as a, a frame of reference, the water table is, um, if you've ever uh, gone to the beach and dug a hole, and then seen water come up, I put a little picture in there, just so for your visualization, that's, that's the, the water table is obviously much higher near the lake, but that's how groundwater sits in uh, sediment. So if there's enough spaces there, the water will accumulate. Mm-hmm. So the water cycle, what what role does groundwater play? So the movement of groundwater is driven by the hydraulic head, which is a pressure gradient underground in the subsurface. And these subsurface water flows to areas of least pressure. And you can see that um, here in this example, uh, the groundwater is flowing up to the surface, uh, maybe near rivers or lakes where it will discharge. And uh, water is in, important to understand so that we can understand how uh, it could be impacting water quality if it is coming to the surface because um, when water does uh, sit below the ground it has longer residence times than water that's moving through the surface so it can accumulate ions from the ge- geology that it's sitting within and that can uh, be how we identify it and, and separate it from surface water because it has different chemistry. So here in Kingston um, we face, uh, the groundwater below the surface will face geologic barriers, um, but that's different from the barriers that um, the water faces in the high arctic. It's not only do they have the geologic barriers there, but they also have uh, permafrost as a barrier. And so that's, that's the major difference between um, groundwater in non-cryotic systems and groundwater in cryotic systems. So I just want to cover the different types of permafrost and where we might see them. Um, so we can see that there's, uh, it ranges from continuous permafrost to um, isolated permafrost, which is very... Um, dis- it's, there's much less of it through uh, the system. And we can see that uh, isolated permafrost is generally accumulated down further in the southern areas uh, of the Arctic, and we generally get the most continuous permafrost where we have those colder climates um, all year round. And that picture down on the left is just showing you how the active, the thickness of the active layer, which Tabitha talked about, which is that um, annual freeze-thaw layer, um, is changing with the different thicknesses of permafrost that you get. So in continuous permafrost areas, that active layer is a lot thinner. And this is another image to show you uh, the permafrost changes with latitude. It can also change with altitude as well, so in mountainous regions you can get permafrost. Um, and it can also change with uh, water bodies and, and different surface features. So. Um, in the high Arctic, the ground is characterized by um, continuous permafrost, and this is where the area that I'm going to be focusing on for my research. So you can see far on the left, in continuous permafrost areas, that permafrost zone is is much thicker than in sporadic permafrost areas. And it's important to understand these permafrost dynamics in a given area to prepare uh, for changes that um, that the landscape might face with warming temperatures in the Arctic. Um, and as warming, as temperatures begin to warm, um, the Arctic systems are expected to, um, to transfer to more of a groundwater dominated system. So we can see in those discontinuous permafrost areas, uh, which would be further down to Alberta or in Nunavut um, at Copper at um, 68 degrees north. These systems have a lot more interactions with groundwater and surface water because the permafrost isn't as continuous and thick in those zones. So groundwater in the high arctic is, is what I want to discuss and it's these are areas where we have that continuous permafrost so it's not very um, understood how uh, the water beneath that permafrost is possibly interacting with the surface or even if it's getting to the surface at all uh, because these systems are so complex um, and it can be very difficult to study them and very costly because of the remote locations but it's important to understand um, one takeaway from this image is that there's, there's so many different potential interactions that actually can go on, and these interactions can go on because of the different thermal dynamics that happen throughout those permafrost regions. So even if the permafrost is 400 to 800 meters thick, you can have surface body features, so lakes, for example, that are changing the dynamics of that temperature below because water has a high heat capacity, and... As a result it can create an unfrozen zone beneath it in the permafrost and this can create those groundwater to surface water connections Um, so another example would be um, we can also get highly saline um, so salt rich groundwater formations and if we have that below the permafrost then this can actually change the freezing point of uh, water and we can get springs that will run up um, through the entire regions of the permafrost and find pathways in the geology and pathways in the permafrost and then actually flow to the surface, which is very, very interesting to see in uh, a frozen environment. So just to zoom in on the lakes, the lakes, as I discussed before, they have the ability to alter the permafrost beneath it. And, and that zone is what we call italic. So if, if the um, lake is sufficiently large enough it can create an unfrozen zone through the entire thickness of the permafrost. And that will be what creates your groundwater to surface water connections. But then you can also get um, taliks interspersed throughout the permafrost. And these can also find pathways up into lakes as well. Um, so just a bit uh, about my research now. So I, I, my research is still relatively in the preliminary stages. Um, that's a picture of me looking at rocks, because I love rocks. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I'm hoping to go up and um, investigate uh, two, uh, two different islands in the high Arctic. So I'll be going to Melville Island um, and exploring two lakes at Cape Bounty Arctic Watershed Observatory. And then I'm also going to be going to Axel Heiberg Island um, at Expedition Fjord and exploring a the lake there as well. So I'm going to discuss that a little bit. So these are um, the maps of the areas that I'm going to be visiting. So on the left side, you can see that's Cape Bounty on Melville Island. And there's two lakes there that I'll be studying. And then on the right side, that's Expedition Fjord. Um, and uh, Tabitha showed it's, that's a, a, an area that is a lot more mountainous, and they have a lot more glaciers there. So these are pictures of two of the lakes at Cape Bounty. Um, and. Uh, one thing to notice, the reason why I showed this picture is um, lakes can look rather uh, boring and maybe quiescent. Um, a lake like this, you wouldn't really think there's a lot going on. But one, one thing to notice is the color difference in the water. So we can see that East Lake on the right side has very like blue water. So the water there is relatively clear um, and there's not a lot of turbidity going on. But um, recently, I think it was in 2012, Westlake went very turbid. So we know that there's some things that are going on in Westlake. And even though they're right beside each other, there's differences happening there. And so that's why they started to investigate um, what might be going on. So um, previous work on the lakes sent um, down uh, casts, and they, they took um, samples from different depths in these lakes. And uh, they, they investigated The possibility of groundwater coming up in the um, bottoms of these lakes. So, there's certain markers on those lakes that you can see. And those um, images on either side of the main map represent uh, the bathymetry of those lakes. And that was also a really cool study that was done up there, where they they were able to actually map the bottom of the, the, the depth of the bottom of those lakes, which is really valuable to me. Um, so just another image of that mapping. This is really cool because um, we can actually see what the depth is at the surface of the lake in different areas because if the lake is cloudy, we'll, we can never see this, and that's what makes it so difficult to study um, the groundwater that might be coming up through these lakes. So having the bathymetry actually um, is, a, is a huge asset to um, being able to choose maybe what areas uh, we want to sample in because one of the, the ideas is that Um, If there's groundwater coming up or a separate water source um, leaking in or seeping into these lakes, then it's going to accumulate maybe in pockets along the bottom if there's a density difference um, due to the difference in geochemistry. Um, And then this is an image that was generated uh, by a study that was done in 2017 that investigated the groundwater at the bottom of the lakes, and they came up with potential uh, uh, theories of, of where this groundwater might be coming from. So one of them is that the groundwater could be coming from um, just an aquifer that's sitting in uh, the permafrost or sitting in the geology beneath the permafrost. Another theory is that the groundwater could be sourced from permafrost brines um, so that's when you have that active uh, layer that's thawing and um, thawing and freezing seasonally then we'll have different uh, ions that will that will precipitate as a layer around uh, the permafrost because um Sometimes when it freezes, it doesn't take up all of the ions in the in the water. So we'll have this um, possibly saline-rich area around that uh, freeze-thaw zone. Um, another, another thought is that um, due to the um, hydraulic uh, gradient within um, the groundwater beneath the permafrost, we might be getting ocean, saline ocean water that's, that's getting beneath the surface, beneath the permafrost. And that could be making its way up... Um, to the uh, bottom of the lake through that talic in the permafrost. So you can see one thing I should explain have explained before is that um, we can see that in this diagram, there's an opening in the permafrost there, and that would be where the pathway, uh, the water, would come up. So I'm showing this picture because this is probably what it's going to look like up there when... I'm going. (laughs) Yeah, I'm getting very excited. I'm going soon. Um, But I'm going to be going up when the ice is still on the lake, and that provides uh, more of a solid surface for me to work on. Um, Some of the work has been done when the ice is off, but they have to then send moorings down while they're sitting in a boat and it's rocking. And one of the the important parts about this research is that I'm going to need to have exact locations so that I can know exactly where these seepages might happen. Um, And that can often be difficult because... You can't get a GPS coordinate under the water, so we need that solid GPS coordinate on the surface of the ice. Um, And these are some images of the sampling methods that were used in the past. And I'm going to try and evolve these into something that will work better for me. um, Because what we do is we combine these sensors um, and we'll send them down and inspect areas at the bottom of the lake to see, oh, okay, is the chemistry different here from the surface of the water? And if we find interesting areas from using the data from the past, then we'll place moorings in the bottom and see if we can detect um, if there are seasonal uh, changes. So if I put moorings down in the spring and then leave them there all summer, is are these ionic chemistries changing um, with, with the change in uh, season, which would be really interesting to see. And another thing that I'm using... Um, which I think I just put it up here. Is, uh, it's, a a called it's called a remotely operated vehicle, and it's pretty much like an underwater drone. Okay. So it's it's like an underwater drone, and I'm going to be using this to help me see. What's beneath the surface, so it's really cool, the, the remote control for it is kind of like an Xbox controller, um, and will, it has a camera on it. So when I go and explore these lakes, I can send it down and and kind of see what's going on beneath and if I'm in the spot that I want to be in. Um, and then I just wanna talk briefly about one other lake that I'm going to on Axel Heiberg Island, and this lake uh, was kind of uh, thought about later in this experiment uh, because we don't have as much information on it in terms of the research that's been studied. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about this lake is that you can it's very clear. So we can visibly see the bottom of the lake and there are visible... Uh, differences in the water chemistry because there's these cloudy pools so there are images from the ROV going down into these lakes and we see these almost like ponds in the bottom of the lake because the water at the bottom is pooling in these depressions in the lake and it's very cloudy so I really want to I'm excited to explore that Um, and then also this is just an image of those um, lakes and you can see that it's really interesting just south of Color Lake uh, there are actual springs that flow all year round. So these are the saline springs that's, um, that are coming. Actually, it's been proven that they're coming from beneath the permafrost. So this is subpermafrost water that's coming up to the surface right near this lake, uh, which is very, very interesting. And they flow at about 6 degrees all year round in an area that has an average temperature of, I think, minus 15 degrees Celsius. So absolutely crazy. Um, and then I just want to discuss the importance of this um, so I'll briefly say that um, the groundwater and surface water are often geochemically different. Um, so they have been shown to have just different, distinctly different geochemical signatures, and this is how I want to um, detect uh, um, the groundwater um, that may be coming up. So Arctic lakes provide an opportunity to investigate investigate groundwater and surface water networks as a proponent of changing patterns of fresh water quality in continuous permafrost environments. So like uh, Matt was discussing earlier um, with the mining industry, if we have, there has been an industry up in the high arctic in the past and it is continuing to expand. Um, And as we have the the climate changing and more areas are going to be beginning to melt, then this leaves more zones and more areas to explore, right? So if we have mine tailing ponds that are being put in there, um, and all they're using to protect this mine waste is the permafrost, which if we find that um, bodies of water can create those surface water to groundwater connections, then this is a potential connection for those mine tailings to actually get in connection with with the water flowing through the system. So it's very important to understand um, the hydrologic, our hydrogeologic connections and and hydrologic connections in these areas, because we haven't, we don't really know that much about (coughs) them and we don't know how they're changing with the changing climate in the north. Yeah, so.
1: All right, well thank you for that great presentation. Thank you. So we get our three panelists to come up and sit at the front, please. Switch into the panel session. And we're just going to uh, open up the floor to the room. You can ask questions. And so let's wait for Maya to wrap up there. I have a there. question. Yeah, but, uh, I think, it,
4: can I put up that image? Of yes. Frost, so <clears throat> really nice All
1: right. <laughs> while you're doing that, in the meantime, let to open up a question, period. How did you all make this wonderful Beyond Boundaries connection, and do you see any collaborative projects coming out of this?
3: Um, Yeah, so me and Tabitha are friends, and when I heard about the conference, I immediately thought, um, because our lab has this new NSERC grant to do Arctic research, and I immediately thought, I knew she was doing Arctic stuff, so that's kind of how it started. And then, of course, you got involved.
4: Yeah, and then they asked me, because I'm, I'm Sitting in the office with Tabitha, and so she asked me if I wanted to do this, and I was like, "Oh, that's so cool!" Because, because I'd read about um, about the the mining industry, but I the and how the industry might affect um, the environment up there, but I didn't really know much about it. So I thought, okay, well, this is like such a great opportunity for collaboration. Um, so yeah. But
5: is this going to be a collaboration with the new insert grant, or is it just going to be the civil engineers?
3: Uh. No, it's that that grants just for our Landfill yeah. Laboratory, but because right.
5: um, it makes it would make sense that you bring in the yeah. the other parties, yeah. so you're not working in silos.
4: Well, I was thinking about this actually while you're presenting, um, and I was thinking that because I, I I worked a bit with the petroleum industry before, and they have um, they're currently developing their regulations in terms of how they want to plug petroleum wells so that they don't contaminate the environment. So I was thinking. Um, if if we I don't know what the regulations are like for the mining industry or landfill um, liners, but um, I think that by like each of our studies, mm-hmm. if we're, they were combined, then they would I feel like be sufficient. You'd probably get information, a better information, right? Yeah. 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 This
6: is a, a
3: real hot topic for interdisciplinary research, yes. like the, C- the Canadian Arctic, um, and you know I think that Queens so are mm-hmm. like. We've done a little bit. Um, our landfill research lab has done a little bit with the Arctic, but it was actually in Antarctica. Um, and Australia has a research station called Casey Station mm-hmm. in, in Antarctica. And one of a previous student was working there, looking at some stuff. But it wasn't. It was just one or two students. It wasn't like an insert grant. So now we're really starting to look at it. Um, but yeah, like Maya said, like you know, there's drilling, uh, exploration, and. and you know I think that it is definitely a multi when I immediately when I heard about this the first thing I knew was this is a multidisciplinary thing so
5: because if the if if between the two of you you can map out where the water's coming from from well what's happening with the permafrost and where the where the gaps are the leaks are mm-hmm. um, where the potential of it coming back up through something else mm-hmm. then for the mining industry
3: right and an interesting then you can say
5: well you, you can't do anything around here we, if you're going to do a liner the liner needs to be over here so it's not interact nothing no, nothing at that wastage. It's just going to get into those cracks even knowing that the geology is going to be constantly
2: changing. Yeah. Um, a difficulty is that I hear that lots of geographers cannot find jobs because a lot of the requirements is oh you need an engineering degree even though geographers do have I think Lots that's where knowledge. we need to
5: change that perception right and, and getting people to if you have the collaborators yeah. if you have the engineers mm-hmm. who have got the name kind of thing and it's the engineers to bring in the geographers yeah. and geologists and geologists and yeah. things like that
2: and we went to the a, program. Mm-hmm. and we went to my well actually all three of us went to engineering uh, talk on permafrost and there was this a guy working soul. in the industry. yeah, that guy. But uh, one of the questions at the end was, well, it was an engineer, and he asked, well, um, sometimes I get a contract, but they don't give me the proper data, so I just do the job based on what I know, but I don't have proper data to do a good job.
5: Right, so it should be using you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That should be all <laughs> so, Sorry, I'm in the front you, that's no, no, right. no. So,
0: extending that beyond further boundaries, mm-hmm. and this is something—don't take this as a criticism—but it's something that we've been talking about within the department is the intersection of humans yeah. and how you guys need to be incorporating going beyond that and not just staying in, well, these are the physical properties of what we're doing. Because if, after all, we're talking about human intervention in all of these things and the influences of such, um, I'm wondering if there's any consideration for um, in, you know, in all cases of, of your research as, as we do further down here, and just maybe by way of explanation, I am in in the geography and planning department as a PhD student but I am a professional licensed archaeologist in the province of Ontario so we are constantly bringing in the human um, relationship to the transformation of the landscape because that's how we understand it culturally so again um, thinking about the potential for indigenous knowledge um, how the landscape and the environment has been used in the past um, traditional knowledge of things, how changes may have been continuing to occur over time or not, but just that whole bringing in, so even even further beyond your research um, and of course for you guys too like how do you, how do we get that um, that interrelationship and discussion moving forward um, and, and then no, there was another part to my question. But it's gone out of my head. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so in terms of the, the industries themselves, I'm thinking particularly the mining industries and, and all those sorts of things. Um, and I get really I'm, I get really annoyed, but I won't go on a tirade about this. But just thinking of the whole concept, which has been around for a long long time, like completely in, in my memory, reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, you know, that whole mantra, it seems to me that we're completely ignoring the reduced part, and we are continuing mm-hmm. to gobble up yeah. everything, but for what? Uh, and then, so, again, linking this back to consumerism, which was your, your great slide mm-hmm. there at the beginning, and lack of knowledge and understanding of the average person of all of this stuff that goes into all of the things we like to consume, and we're all guilty of it, you know, I'm, I Just look at what I've gone on. But you know thinking about that and how do we change um, the capitalist system? I know that's a really <laughs> hard yeah, thing. So, but I mean the, yeah, to me, it begins with basic education and understanding of the, the choices that we make um, in terms of our purchases. And, you know, what is good for the environment, what is bad, and then how do you weigh and balance those things, and do we really all need to be consuming yeah. all this stuff? Sorry. <laughs> try, have, to, try not to a, go on my tongue. I can okay. go <laughs> okay. 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 I was just
3: going to say, um, well, first of all, so I'm a geo-environmental engineer, so I know I talked about, you know, these mining waste facilities, but by no means am I, like, condoning and promoting the use of them. I'm basically talking about environmental factors uh, surrounding the environmental protection when they're created. And I actually think that, so there's a cost with mining, like, for example, the cost of gold, right, or diamonds. And I think that with the technology right now, that in the amount of, it, uh, the amount of effort that the company, mining companies are putting into the environmental protection, from my perspective, they can improve it, and that'll be an added cost for the barrier system, for the maintenance of the facility. But that extra cost will be incurred on the consumer. So, like, in the case of the Arctic, I think that they should spend, if they're, like, going to do these, they should have more regulations, therefore the cost will be higher. Is that, you know what I mean? Can I yeah, Yeah, the consumption,
0: theoretically, would be lower. Exactly. Because not everybody yeah. can
4: afford it. Well, that's... Um, sorry, and just one thing to say. So I, I worked with uh, the petroleum industry before I came here, um, and I worked for uh, the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. And one of the biggest things is they're trying to develop those regulations, um, and they do that it, uh, with also with community outreach. So they'll go to different municipalities and do uh, information sessions, um, like, I don't know, once a year or something like that, and they try and get to those mun- municipalities so they can... They can can get what their perspective is uh, and then they can bring that back and then they can also tell them um, kind of the, the higher level perspective as well so so that the community can understand how difficult it is to actually make these changes. But one of the big things with the regulation is um, you have those regulations on there. If there are no regulations, then anyone can kind of go and do anything they want and it's easier for them to do it. But if you have the regulation, then there's a lot more steps that they have to go to to actually. Um, start that that mine or like drill their petroleum well and I, I think that that is a step forward but I also really agree in terms of um, the education is is a really
0: big thing. And, and not wanting to crush your spirits okay. really to regulations. Yeah. Having been yeah. through this on the <laughs> cultural side for over 35 years yeah. and seeing every change at least in provincial government and federal because the federal system is different mm-hmm. um, and seeing regulations put on and then pulled back. Yes. We're not getting we're not moving forward. Yeah. For every step we take forward, we're taking with a change in government, we're taking two steps backward and we have to do it all over again. Mm-hmm. And it and I mean honestly, you guys have more energy because you're younger. Yes. But you know for those of us who've been at it for decades yeah. trying to affect that change, please, please, please push harder. Yes. It's push exhausting. harder with the newer you know, more advanced knowledge that you have, yes. um, that you're gaining from your research and, and like, you got to stick it to these government yeah. people. But and that's, that's the important thing, you've,
5: you've got to keep it government in, government. in the front, We can't just yeah. Yeah. keep it quiet, but it's that, great you're doing the research but you, we've no, got to I, get it out yeah. there. And honestly
3: the th- one thing I was thinking about, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is that the Arctic is really like one of the last frontiers in mm-hmm. a sense, and it's kind of like the Wild West, not like it's like the Wild West but if you think about in America, you know, in the 1800s with the bison so we just thought we could just kill buffalo and bison and they used to be like millions they used to be everywhere, right, and now there's none and I think that maybe like in an analogy like Arctic groundwater and like the sort of like pristine of, of that sensitive nature which has like clean, potentially clean sources of groundwater that could be like the next uh, hidden buffalo.
5: But when you think about too, you talk about Yes, you talked about the where it's potentially coming from the sea, coming underneath and everything. Well, with the Northwest Passage opening up more now, right. mm-hmm. China's getting then involved. what else is coming from the sea that right. normally wouldn't have come in the past, right? So yeah. we've got those influences coming in at the same time.
2: That's a great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah because not
5: everyone's going to do the right thing. No. And how
0: does it, sorry, yes. <laughs> but just to, just to continue that, how does that affect where the population base is, That's the, right. the, the majority of the population, in terms of, you know, because you talk to the average person, say, oh, we've got lots of water, why are we worrying about it? You know, just that general, you know, disconnect from how these things affect where we are. I'm going to say sorry, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs>
5: get it quick before us. No. you could enlighten me, mm-hmm. who awards a mining contract? And are the Inuit, on whose land it might be, yeah. get any part of it, or are they just yeah. guaranteed jobs, and then yeah. the mine closes?
3: Well, okay. So uh, I don't um, know a ton about this, but I researched it a little bit uh, recently, just like a quick search on the internet. And it seems that it's uh, it varies by <laughs> jurisdiction and province. Um, and also that there's like environmental impact assessments and typically a hearing is involved. But uh, yeah, but honestly, it sounds like this is more of your, you have more experience in this, you know. Yeah. I'm just going to say
0: my the, the environmental impact assessments both provincially, I only know Ontario, but and federally have been decimated. Mm-hmm. They are worse now than they've ever been, mm-hmm. even though... Yeah, even though the governments will say, oh, we've done this, and, and then relating back to the public consultation, I have been to public consultation sessions. I've been to those little uh, sort of presentation things where they have a board or two and you're supposed to stick stickies on, and then nobody knows what happens to the words on stickies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've been through through major consultations on the, the Heritage Act in the province, and so a, a, a change gets made in the regulations. But then you get, um, just for an example, the provincial, provincial policy statement. Mm-hmm. Right. Which then, like, how does that relate? So there's all these different pieces. So you've got regulations, you've got the PPS, you've got the Act, you've got you know, all these things that we have to work within that framework. But then you see the public consultation that goes forward. And I have to say, the majority of people who are supposed to be being consulted with don't understand the importance of it, don't understand what the outcomes can be, um, generally have an apathetic viewpoint. It's like, there's no point in me going because nobody will listen to me anyway. And that's Mm -hmm. true in a sense, because so many of us have put so much effort into it, and we just kind of go away saying, oh my God, why did I just spend all that time and effort? So it's a constant, you know, it's a constant push. And, and then the other part of it is the academic part getting out into, so all the research. And, you know, we we, we see it happening right now. We saw it happening with the, the Harper government muzzling scientists. We see it happening south of the border. Um, all of that stuff has taken us back yeah.
4: and 20 years or more. When right? when I worked, uh, for the Ministry of Natural Resources in the Petroleum Operations section that was just when there was the turnover. And I experienced total chaos. Um, And the problem is is that there are so many different levels that have to approve something. So when when you submit something new to happen, then there's so many different people that have to approve it. And those people that were there before generally know what's going on in, in each section, but as soon as everything turns over, then you have new people everywhere. And so these new people don't understand, and they don't know you, and they don't know if you're trustworthy and things like that. And so that's why you get those steps that are taken back. And then another point on uh, the researchers. So we, we were working with uh, different researchers when I was there, and we kept having to bring it back because researchers get so excited about what they're doing. But we can't sell all of that at once because the higher level won't understand what it is or why it's important. So I think that's a huge gap, being able to take um, higher level research and communicate it in a condensed way that can get the important message across quick enough before things have to change over again. It's, and, and I totally agree with you. It's, it's very frustrating. Yes. Yeah.
0: But you guys are doing great research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I would encourage you to just keep pushing and shoving and being mouthy about it. And and that's a big part of it, is to get the word out.
3: It seems that these hearings and these approval processes are, some are stringent and maybe, you know, and they're not created equal. Like some, that's one of the problems that I see about these, uh, especially like when I'm dealing with barrier systems and landfills is that some like, have like a ton of attention thing is that you know even if they don't really like mine in the arctic there will be like people moving up in the arctic so i think that researching the arctic you know in terms of like permafrost changes and groundwater hydrology no matter what happens it's going to to thaw and warm up and people are going to say oh that's a nice place to live i'd like to move up there
5: <laughs> and, and can i caution everyone as an australian mm-hmm. you don't want to get like australia like we have a
3: because
5: yeah, it's used getting to, hotter. Yeah, it's getting hotter. And <laughs> yeah. we used to have this huge water basin underneath. Like I remember when I first went to university in Perth, i go, how come all the footpaths are all yellow? And they go, oh, that's the groundwater, the bore water underneath. It's come up, you know, they're taking it straight. And that used to be this big plateau over the whole Western Australia and half of South Australia was this big plain of water. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to use that water now. It's forbidden because that big landmass or mass underneath is now below knee level. That's the height of it. So that's, so all the water has gone, right? And there's nothing else to fill it in. Mm-hmm. And we're having we're doing a lot of mining still in Australia. Yeah, I've heard and, Of about. course, ScoMo, our lovely prime minister, still wants to do coal mining.
3: Mm-hmm. Well,
5: coal mining takes a lot of fresh water. Yeah. To produce to get it out of the soil and clean it up to be able to ship it off overseas Australia doesn't have a lot of fresh water
0: mm-hmm.
5: now the same could happen up in the Arctic where you've got these mining companies coming in and if, if more do go up there because they find it easier to get down into the ground then the groundwater and everything else that you guys are doing are going to be super important one for making sure it doesn't get contaminated and then the second is do we have enough to be able to do that and for everyone else to still, whichever mm-hmm. populations move up there to be able to live? I know it's just a statement, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, but what's happened not. in Australia just recently just has affected me quite, quite a lot, <laughs> yes. as you can imagine. But, I mean, that's a classic example of how things can change, and with global warming, it is going to spread to other places. And we have to be very careful... And those linings—I know I've seen um, some of your colleagues um, have shown about the linings for the oil, carrying the oil, and, and the waste, like you mm-hmm. said, the big football fields worth,
0: mm-hmm. and yeah. things.
5: Yeah, and that yeah, is important. Mm-hmm. But what's also equally important, coming to with what the government's <clears> doing, <throat> no mining thing should have a um, a permit mm-hmm. unless they put some sort of bond aside. Mm-hmm. To clean up their mess, yeah, place, they don't yeah
6: absolutely. Up.
3: Like bonding is super important. Is yeah. there, could we at the question? Yes, back? sorry. We yeah. a question? Mm-hmm. Can I uh, yes, that
1: once?
5: Have you three gone across what they do with the garbage in the, in the Arctic? Because what mm-hmm. I recall is certain communities just have it strewn all over, there's no disposal mm-hmm. of it, and how that affects some of your work. Mm-hmm. I know you do mining and your emphasis is on mining, but maybe you ran across, like, a caliber, how would they get rid of their garbage? And mm-hmm. maybe they don't.
2: Seafing, your research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well I know in a they just put it by the ocean. Um, <coughs> not they just store it there and they don't dig because it's frozen. Right. They just leave it see. there. So and it's just it's, it's just a pile, yeah. So when there is a runoff that occurs and then eventually reaches streams, for example, that that affects their drinking water. And mm-hmm. especially a is growing so much that they're gonna have to change or add an, another, um, what's called it? Landfill. Uh,
0: landfill, yeah. <laughs> um, a landfill implies garbage, dirt, Yeah. Okay, you know, then just, sorry. just not, a not pile, that. A garbage pile. Just, yeah, they're gonna
2: have to add another garbage pile.
1: So it's just the, uh, and it doesn't disintegrate at a very fast rate because of the climate. No.
2: And the reason why they do that is it's too expensive to ship it south. Exactly. Um, it should yeah. be at, at great expense, but yeah, it stays no. there. Yeah. Is there uh-huh. any
1: containment? Like any fence around or anything they put on top, like a no. netting?
2: And in Resolute Bay, they burn it. Mm. And then the polar bears, like, a, yeah. they come and in and try to eat. Yeah. And then they, and that's not good for them.
1: Yeah. Right. And then
2: and they on. spread it around. But yeah, oh. they burn a lot of you. It's
1: it's incredible, that's permitted. Yeah,
2: and yeah. it's yeah. just an ongoing fire. There's a safe way to incinerate trash.
3: I mean, but it's very, very expensive. In Sweden, for example, uh, Sweden burns 100 percent of their trash, okay. and their incinerators are so large that they import waste from Britain to keep the BTUs the heat up. Um, but they're like, like cleaning all the smoke is through all these processes where it like cleans it and everything, and then yeah, it's like CO2 and like probably a couple other you know pretty harmful trace amounts of stuff. But uh, but I think like. They're burning in the Arctic. It sounds like they're just throwing it into a fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> not the same. <laughs> yeah. <All right>. But <laughs> the,
0: other, sorry, the other component of that is what are they consuming? Mm-hmm. And I'd be willing to bet, I don't know anything about this, so don't quote me on it, but I would bet you that, that Norway, Sweden, you know, all those places are probably starting off with much more sustainable stuff to begin with mm-hmm. and, and less, yes. just given their whole exactly, yeah. social culture um, than what's being shipped into the Arctic, because everything has to be shipped into the Arctic, right? Everything mm-hmm. that is consumed mm-hmm. has to be shipped in. So
5: what do they do in the Antarctic? Is it in and out? Uh,
6: I am mm-hmm. not so Sorry? No it was a research,
5: research station, do they bring it in
6: and out? I'm I sorry.
3: think they yeah. do. I yeah, I mean, my friend Vanessa who yeah. went there for a project said that they do have to bring stuff out. Yeah.
6: Especially yeah, for, yeah, for research,
0: like issues. on our sites we have to bring everything out. Yeah. 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 What about, I mean like I'm thinking about the dew line. I mean we know
2: mm-hmm.
0: that all the dew line stations are still have all the crap that they, you know, from the mm-hmm. oil drums to whatever else they brought in. They just left it there, left it there right. and, and no, now everything's rusting and mm-hmm. spilling changing. out. Mm-hmm. Got
3: a question.
6: I'm uh, just uh, curious about more of the mining industry. And uh, when when a location is chosen, I imagine, and I suspect a lot of, you know, probably geolog- geolog- or geologists, geographers, hydrologists, uh, engineers, they probably all kind of get together and choose a location where a mine would kind of begin. But at the same time, I, I would imagine that they would also uh, kind of select a spot for or their landfills there. No, I think
3: that's an afterthought.
6: That's an afterthought. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah. so, let's so be real.
3: They're mining company. They're after yeah, the money, yeah. the profits, they're after where the gold is, right? Mm. So
4: So that should be something if, if there was a good yeah. regulation, they should have a plan.
3: So, so, so it <laughs> it, uh, it a landfill getting, in a landfill in Toronto, for example, would be the first thought would be where's the natural aqua where's the clay site? So they'd be selecting it yes. and there'd be a lot of yes. years of approval processes and all that right. stuff.
6: It's different. To me it would make sense, you know, as a geologist, you would try to find a spot where you not only can you mine but you can also safely get rid of your waste, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. um,
3: No, I don't think so, so So you're saying
6: that that their wastes aren't necessarily a concern at the beginning, only after mining has already happened?
3: No, it's a concern from the beginning to end. Right. I mean it's never not a like it once it's mined, once waste is put somewhere, like, you know, it, it's always there, right? So but I think that all we can do is at we can put more pressure on them by requiring more robust barrier systems. So that te- like our research lab, like what we're doing is researching like technology to like the best type of technology for the barrier systems, right? So the problem is that they don't always use it, or they may use it, but they install it like they don't put it in properly. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's a huge part of it. Like especially yeah. with geomembranes. like they yeah. wrinkle in the sun, for example. So the best time to cover it is in the night, because um, you want it like really in intimate contact with the the And the only time you get night is in the winter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
3: <coughs> yeah. Okay. yeah there, if really you're, so
6: <laughs> so are there any other sort of ideas besides these barriers that that, um, that yeah. there's, have emerged yeah, for waste management?
3: Um, like there's incineration, um, and <laughs> but do <how> you <laughs> water? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but
2: okay, you showed us a liner or mm-hmm. a system that was like twice the height of a human. How, how expensive is it? And is it cheaper to do that than to ship it back south?
3: Okay, so that was like the most robust type of, like when you're looking at that type of thickness, we're talking about the like Canadian Nuclear Laboratories type of like, liner system. Okay. Uh, but typically they would be like about half that size. Um, on a mining project, even smaller, potentially. Um,
6: mm-hmm. It probably depends on the mining project. Yeah, you know, there's a lot
3: of different configurations. Too. But I think that, like, honestly, like, definitely reducing the amount of solid waste disposal is, like, the ultimate goal here. And, and, and also, mm-hmm. like, getting to, like, Mark's kind of, like, forte is, like, how can we use this stuff in a beneficial way? Like, so it's not just cradle to grave, right? Mm-hmm. I think that but it's hard with mining waste like what, what are you going to do with tailings right like maybe they could clean them and then use them something. or something for some something i mean right, so uh,
1: sadly i'm going to have to wrap up with oh, one yeah. final quick yeah. question so, do you have an, a simulated Arctic uh, landfill yet? And if not, could that be a collaborative project? To yeah. oh, model you mean landfill? in the laboratory, like yes. Your simulators? Yes,
3: uh, we're, we're working on it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Great. I think you're right. It should be collaborative. Maybe you can sell, Absolutely. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Pretty <laughs> <happen>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much yeah. for your attention. Thank you. Well, Thank well, done. Done. well done.
0: That's it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference.